please do, please do turn with me to our text for this morning from Acts chapter 11. And I'm just going to read through the whole of Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, 
to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barabbas and Saul. This is God's word. Amen. As we come to God's word, let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We know we need it in our hearts and our lives. We know that our our nation and our town and our our neighborhood needs the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need you now, Lord, as you meet with us through your word and by your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would meet with us through the word. You would encourage us. That you would build us up as we sit under your word. Our souls feed on your great truth in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a real joy to be with you this morning. As Johnny mentioned, my name is Gareth. I'm one of the fellowship at Oxford Presbyterian Church. And at Oxford Presbyterian Church, our pastor Andy is currently preaching through the book of Acts. And as he's been preaching through Acts, he's quite early on in the book at the moment, but as he started to preach through Acts and we've started to read through it, something that really strikes me is that the book of Acts is full of pictures of revival. In some ways, it's almost like a photo album of revival, of the Holy Spirit moving powerfully, the gospel being preached, people hearing the message and being saved. And when we look at the world around us today, when we see how godless our nation is and, and how, how wickedness is just abounding in the world, as, as someone who was ordained as an Anglican minister has left the Church of England, I, I just watch on aghast at what's going on in the Church of England and we think, what is going on right now? We look at the state of it and it's like I find myself almost praying like Isaiah, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. Lord, would you do something? We are, we are overwhelmed with our need of God in, in these times. We need that, that awe of God again. The awe of the holiness of God, recognizing that we're sinners, recognizing that we need him. That we're living in this, this spiritual wasteland. And, and the church is so often weak and divided and, and giving in to all kinds of false teaching. That whilst, whilst the culture and society gets more and more godless. And, and I recognize really in this time that if anything good happens, it can only be because of the power and grace of God. Now I often think that over the years the, world, the word revival has been thrown around almost rather carelessly. And yet if ever we needed a revival, is it not now? Is it not right now? Do we not need a revival? Do we not, Lord, would you do something And yet, here's the thing, as we look at this together today, I just want us to remind ourselves and be encouraged that he's the same God today as he was back then. God has not changed. God has not given up his sovereignty. He's still the same God today, and he still cares about us today. I love this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about revival. He says, revival by definition is first of all an enlivening, quickening and awakening of lethargic, sleeping, almost moribund church members. Suddenly the power of the Spirit comes upon them and they are brought into a new and more profound awareness of the truths that they had previously held intellectually and perhaps at a deeper level too. They are humbled. They are convicted of sin. They are terrified at themselves. Many of them feel that they've never been Christians and they come to see the great salvation of God in all its glory and to feel its power. 
then as a result of their quickening and enlivening, they begin to pray. Something we often see when God is at work, people pray. The church prays. We recognize that hunger in us. How we need his power at work today as the, as the psalmist prays, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And so the title of my message this morning is Repentance That Leads to Life. Repentance That Leads to Life. And in a moment we will look at Acts 11, but before we do, I just want to go very briefly back over Acts up to that point. Beginning of Acts, the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches the gospel um, in Jerusalem and and about 3,000 people come to faith. They're cut to the heart by the message. And then the church starts to grow. But as the church grows, so we see persecution. We see Stephen being martyred. We also see Saul persecuting the church. And then he himself is powerfully converted and becomes the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Philip preaches the gospel, explains the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and, and baptizes him. And then we come to Acts chapter 10 where we read about a key moment when the penny drops for the, the, the Apostle Peter in a very powerful way that salvation is for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And in Acts 10 and 11 we read about a major turning point in redemptive history, the, the birth of the Gentile church. The first time we see Christians mentioned in our Bible, this is the beginning of the Gentile church. This significant turning point. And Peter, uh, earlier on in chapter 10, Peter preaches the gospel under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, as he'd done on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And in in Acts 10, verse 42, it says, as, as Peter's preaching, Peter says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins according to his name. And then as Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of them who heard that word. And here we have this picture of revival. That's what a revival looks like. The gospel's preached And notice that Peter doesn't pull any punches. The whole gospel is preached. He tells them that that Christ is coming back as judge. But as a a minister in the Anglican church, it used to disturb me personally when when we we would recite the words of the Nicene Creed. Every week this would be in the communion service and we would just sort of read it out and he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. You think, well, hang on a minute. Just think about what you've just said. And he will come again in glory, to judge the living and the dead. Does that not strike fear into you, or does that strike hope? Do you think, praise God, he's coming soon? Or do you say, well, if if he's coming back, do I know him? And this is what Peter preaches. Christ is coming back. And he will come back as saviour for those who know him, but he will come back as judge for those who don't. And in, in Peter's gospel address, there's the reality of sin. There is the holiness of God and there's the judgment to come. Which then naturally leads to the question, how can I escape this coming judgment? How can I be forgiven? And that's when Peter gives them the good news. Whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Whoever puts their trust 
in the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross, who died on that cross as your substitute in your place for your sin, offers forgiveness to us. We receive the forgiveness of sins when we put our trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the Holy Spirit convicted the hearers, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. And the Jewish believers were astonished by this because the the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out onto the Gentiles as well. As we, before we look at this, it's, it's kind of hard for us to understand today how astonishing this was at the time. But this is the wonderful grace of God extended to all of us, Gentiles as well as Jews, that we would be included in God's great plan of salvation. It's a staggering thing when you realize that God chose Israel as his chosen people And then, in addition to Israel, his people, he chooses us as well. In fact, in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of a branch that's been grafted into the olive tree. The olive tree, of course, being symbolic of Israel. And the branch that's been grafted in is the Gentiles. And that God has included the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. And may we never lose the wonder of this. That's why the the Apostle Paul, at the end of Romans 11, he just kind of gets lost in in awe and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Praise God that he would save us, that he would redeem us. And so there's three things I'd like to bring out of chapter 11 of Acts this morning. And first of all, that is the grace of God. Let's think together for a moment about the grace of God. The Apostle Peter had been challenged by his, his fellow Jews. And, and, and they, ref, they, they referred to themselves, they referred to as those of the circumcision. And they reprimanded Peter. They said, you went and had a meal with uncircumcised people. But you don't do that. You went and had a meal with uncircumcised men. They were shocked. They were outraged at this. They couldn't believe that he'd done that. But we need to look at their response through the lens of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to understand why they responded so strongly. It's fair to say that these men, they were not being deliberately prejudiced. They were not being harsh towards these Gentile converts. But it was because of their understanding of salvation. In Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And and the people of God are given the mark of circumcision. This is a mark or a sign of being set apart for God, belonging to his covenant people. That is to, to identify with, with, with belonging to the people of God. So in the Jewish mind, circumcision was more than just a physical mark. It was a moral one. You have to remember that all the nations that surrounded Israel at that time, they're engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of carnality, all the kind of things we see in the world today. And, and as bad as it is, it was happening in those times as well. Sin has been in the world since the fall. And so all the perversions were going on around that time. And yet, as the people of God, they were called to be distinct and different. Surrounded as they were by all those godless and pagan nations, God is calling them to pursue holiness. You shall therefore be holy as I'm holy. So circumcision was this outward mark of holiness. So going back to the circumcision party, these Jewish men, they were believers. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah. 
They, they had understood and, and been born again. So these were true believers. They were born again and spirit-filled. The issue was that it hadn't occurred to them that Jesus had died for the Gentiles as well. And so Peter retells what happened to them. And he tells how he, how he proclaims the gospel. He says to them, if, if God gave them the same spirit as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, and who am I to stand in the way of God? And these Jewish men are amazed at the grace of God. And they say, then God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an astonishing act of grace that I think we so easily forget today. That God would extend his, his kingdom, he would extend his salvation to those outside of his chosen people group. And you can imagine at that time, they could not understand this. That this was a, this was a special thing, God's salvation was special to them. It was unique to them. It's a pure and perfect promise to the people of God. So the Israel, Israelites, the Jews are thinking, why on earth would God then choose to share that wonderful salvation with a stiff-necked, rebellious, pagan, adulterous people, a people who are pagan worshipping? Why would God offer that salvation to them? They're godless people. They're worldly people. They have no understanding of the things of God. And yet the answer can be found in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the, to the Corinthians, reminds them, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. That is the grace of God that is given to us, and may we never cease to be amazed by it. But secondly, there is repentance that leads to life. These Jewish men, they said that God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's think for a moment, what is repentance? Repentance literally means, it comes from the Greek word metanoia, it means turning away from sin. It is the response of a new heart. It's a heart that's been changed and no longer wants to live in the way that it once did. To quote Sinclair Ferguson, he says, Repentance is a characteristic of the whole life, not the action of a single moment. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to live differently. It's a call to walk obediently with Christ. The very first recorded words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark's Gospel are, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Repent and believe the Gospel. Also notice that repentance and faith go together. It's not just turning away from bad habits. It's not just, just living better. And I think this is, in a way, certainly I've noticed this over the years in, in churches, that sometimes we've, we've confused behavioral change with true repentance. A, a person might exercise willpower and, and turn over a new leaf. In fact, if you look on social media, Twitter X, as it's now called, there's all these, these kind of self-help ways of being better, ways to make improvements in your life. There are, there are things that almost sound borderline Christianity, and yet they're not. 
They're just works. They're saying you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you should try doing this. You can change the way you live your life, you can do things better. But it's just works, and works can't save us. In fact, I've known people like this, people who've become more healthy. They might have started you know, a, a different way of, of living. They may even come to church sometimes. They, they've cleaned up their life. But yet, if they're still rejecting Christ, if they're still living away from God, if they're still live, living a life that says, I don't care about God, I don't need to change, and, and recognizing that that change can only come by the Holy Spirit, then they're still dead and under the judgment of God. There is so much humanism around, even in the church. There's so much of this thinking, well, as long as I'm a good person, I'm okay. But where's the regeneration? In fact, often in churches, regeneration isn't even mentioned. You must be born again. The Holy Spirit must have changed your heart. Before a person is able to, re- to repent and to believe the gospel, they have to be convicted in their heart. They have to recognize their need of God and that can only come by the Holy Spirit. I remember as a, as a younger man, 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago, I can remember picking up my Bible that I'd been given by my parents. I, I only really knew where the Psalms was in Matthew's Gospel. I didn't read the Bible, I didn't know the Bible really at all. I'd been to church all my life and yet it was just something you did and you hoped that somehow you'd, you'd get in. But you know, I was reading Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit convicted me in such a way, I would say ruined me in that moment, I fell on my knees. And I cried out to God and I realized, I'm a sinner, I've failed. I cannot do this, I'm not a Christian, I need your help. And you know, I just prayed, I asked the Lord in that moment, Lord, I want to be a true believer, but you're going to have to help me, I don't know how to do it. You know, 20 years on, he hasn't stopped helping me. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. When, when God has awakened faith in your heart, he helps you to walk faithfully. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to be regenerate and to be sanctified. It is a work completely of God. And earlier on in the book of Acts, when, when Peter stood up in Jerusalem, he, he preaches the gospel right at the beginning in Acts chapter 2. And, it, and under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has always got to be there when the gospel is being preached. That's what cut the men to the heart. And they, they were cut to the heart and they were desperate to be saved. And they say, what must we do? Okay, we get it. What do we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we understand that repentance is the Holy Spirit bringing change into our hearts. And putting our faith in Christ. But what is repentance that leads to life. Let's think for a moment about what repentance, what repentance is that leads to life. So it's, first of all, it's when a, a sinner who turns away from sin and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is given the gift of the Holy Spirit and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in his letter to Ephesians says, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. So having heard the gospel, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's God's way of saying, you belong to me. And the Holy Spirit brings the assurance of our salvation. So we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but we also believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repentance that leads to life is believing specifically in the atoning death of Christ on the cross, but also the resurrection. 
Believing that Jesus rose bodily from the dead is absolutely crucial to our faith. Firstly, because the resurrection means that his sacrificial death on the cross was sufficient and therefore all of our sins can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's a direct connection between the resurrection of Christ and the sufficiency of his death to atone for our sins. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the physical proof that God was fully satisfied. In the resurrection, Jesus was was vindicated, and by our faith in his death and resurrection, we are vindicated before God. It says in Romans, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Secondly, the, the, the resurrection means that death is defeated once and for all. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, thy victory. Not only did Jesus' resurrection defeat death for himself, but it also defeated it for us. When he rose again, we are no longer afraid of death. Do you understand what a big thing that is? I've been in old people's home. I've seen the terror of people who are dying. And they don't know where they're going. To, To be dying or to face death and not be afraid is a huge thing. We know where we're going when we die. That is, that is the, what the resurrection of Christ achieves. But thirdly, the resurrection mean, uh, means that we have been given new spiritual life. We've been raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So repentance that leads to life is the work of the Holy Spirit in redeeming our hearts as sinners. And bringing about a change of that heart and being filled with the indwelt Holy Spirit. And this new life in Christ brings us the benefits of the gospel, the assurance of our salvation and eternal life, the changing of our hearts to become more like Christ. And so the circumcision that God commanded of Abraham and his descendants pointed to a new and better circumcision. A circumcision that is now reality in the new covenant. It is the circumcision of the heart. A circumcised heart is a heart that loves the Lord and wants to be obedient to him. It is a repentant heart. And thirdly and lastly, at the end of Acts 11, we see the gospel mandate. We see how the early church in Antioch was starting to grow. In verse 19, Luke tells us that there was one group of people, and they were all going out and and taking the gospel to the Jews. And and in verse 20, there was another bunch of people going out to the Gentiles. And as the gospel was spreading geographically and, and, and culturally, One thing we we recognize from this is we don't know the names of these people. They're just ordinary people like you and me. But God was using them. In fact, it says in Acts 11 verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. These are just non-prominent Christians being used by the Lord. And God was using them, and we all have our part to play in the growth of the church. We do see that there are leaders there, Barnabas and Saul and Paul are brought in and used to to lead that church. But God also used ordinary people. There's some practical advice for us as well. They they went out as groups. Evangelism is quite scary to do on your own. I don't think uh, some people are very good at it on their own, but most of us find it quite difficult to, to share our faith. But they went out as groups, sharing the gospel. And it says a great number of them turn to the Lord. 
I know you might look at this today and think, well, that was back then. That was in the Acts of the Apostle. People are so resistant to the gospel now. It's so hard to share our faith. It's so difficult when you talk to people they don't want to know. But again, as I said at the beginning, he's still the same God today as he was back then. He's still the same God who's helping those people then as he does now. That we should long to see God move and change those around us. I just want to quote quote, uh, from Charles Spurgeon who says, The surrounding darkness needs you, and therefore it is written, Among whom ye shine as lights in the world, you are intended to warn and rebuke some, to entreat and encourage others. To you the more comfort and the ignorant for instruction. Let them never look in vain. Be the true friend of men. Observe their condition before God and endeavor to reclaim them from their wanderings. If Joseph was sent to Egypt, that he might save his father's house alive, you also are sent where you are for the sake of some hidden ones of the Lord's chosen family. If Esther was placed in the court of a heathen king for the deliverance of her nation, so are you, my sister, called to occupy your present position for the good of the church of Christ. Look ye to it, brethren, lest ye miss your life's object and live in vain. And just as I close, I just want to share one story from when I was a a trainee in the church. I did my placement in a a Category B men's prison in Bristol. The the chaplain at that time was was an old-fashioned gospel preacher, evangelist. In fact, if you think Ray Winston, but as a Christian evangelist, you kind of get in there. This, 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 This big man's man used to stand up there every Sunday and preach the gospel, and you would not believe how many prisoners used to stream into the chapel, that the officers couldn't understand what was going on, although some of those officers also came to faith. And, the, and, the, and these officers would say, I don't know why, they, they've, got, they've got gym, they've got exercise, they've got IT, they've got any number of things. Why did they come to this chapel on a Sunday morning? These men were hungry for God. They realized that they'd sat under a judge or magistrate who told them, you're a bad person and you're being punished. You didn't have to explain to them that they were sinners. And they sat there every, every, every Sunday, and so many of them responded to the gospel. But I remember one, one Monday, I used to go in as, as, as part of my community placement, and I'd go around the different, different cells and, and, and meet with the prisoners to pray or to read the Bible with them. I went to this one Polish prisoner. I went to speak to him, and, and he said, I was in the chapel on Sunday, and your chaplain preached the gospel, and, I, and, I, and his message moved me, I, I realized that I've never needed God as much as I do now, and I, I want to commit my life to Christ. I need the Lord in my life. And so I prayed with this prisoner, and, and he committed his life to the Lord. And, and he, it was a very moving moment of just, of just telling the Lord, he crying out to the Lord and saying he needed him. So I went to leave the cell, and, and the chaplain was standing outside with his cellmate. And, and so he said to me, oh, Gareth, have a pray with his cellmate. So, okay, so I go back into the cell with this guy's cellmate. And I start talking to him, and, and he doesn't speak any English. So he starts speaking uh, no English. And, and, and so I, in that moment, I'm, I, what do I do? So I went back out and said to the chaplain, well, he doesn't, he doesn't speak English. And the chaplain said, well, you'll just have to get back in the cell and, and you know, come out when you've prayed with him. So as so I go back in the cell, at this point, I'm panicking. I'm thinking, what do I do in this situation? And I suddenly, almost like maybe, maybe the Lord gave me a nudge, I don't know, but I suddenly thought, well, he speaks good English. Maybe just translate I started talking to this Polish prisoner, and, and he's translating. He wanted me to pray with him. Okay, so I start praying, and, and he's translating it into Polish, and I'm praying, and, and he's translating it into Polish, and 
I'm thinking, could be saying anything. Could be saying, who's this guy and when's he going to leave our cell? And, uh, and, and this is going on. And I'm thinking, uh, really lacking in faith in that moment, I have to say. But then I suddenly look at the, the prisoner and, and tears are streaming down his cheeks. And I've been in so many churches and places, I've never experienced the presence of like I did in that prison cell in Bristol, men's prison. It sounds a weird thing to say. I didn't want to leave the prison cell. I was so caught up with what God was doing in the lives of those two prisoners. And, and as I eventually reluctantly left, I turned around to look one last time to wave goodbye. And they were both sat with the Polish New Testament reading the word of God together. And I wonder, do we not just long for that again today? I've seen it with my own eyes. It's the closest I've ever seen to a revival, but I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen the power of God at work. And I know that if we long for it, I know that if we pray for it, first of all, I think we have to know how blessed we are to be saved. To, to have that awe of what God has done for us. And to be so amazed by the grace he's shown us. And then to just long for others to have that. To pray for Solihull. To have our hearts broken for the people around us. That they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would have that repentance that leads to life. Let us close in prayer. Psalm 16 that we sung earlier. It says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. For those of us here who know and love you, we want to give thanks once again and pray that we would never lose the awe and wonder of what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. That we'd never take it for granted. That it would never become something that's mechanical or just something that we ascend to, but it's something that moves us in the bottom of our hearts and our souls rejoice in what you've done for us. I also want to pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would come to know the forgiveness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here in this congregation who has not surrendered their life to you, I pray that they would. I pray that they would come to repentance that leads to life. I pray that they would know the fullness of joy that comes from walking with you, that they would know that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, that the world makes all the promises and yet never delivers. The only place where we can find fullness of joy and pleasure is with you. And so we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know you, that they would come to know the pleasures forevermore and that eternal relationship with you. And lastly, we just want to lift up Sully Hull and all those living around here, those near the church. We pray for, for them, for you to move on their hearts, for you to bring people through the door here at Sully Hull Press, looking for spiritual bread. And we pray for the courage in this very hostile climate that we live in to share the gospel, that we would share the gospel of your grace and that we would see salvation coming to many houses and many places. In Jesus' precious name, Amen.